Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. This is the show where talented scriptwriter Callum will write me something. I've got it right here. It's Leopold and Loeb, the genius killers. This is actually an idea that I came up with. I read about these guys, that they were these super high IQ people who got into killing people. I was like, well, that sounds like a perfect subject for The Casual Criminalist. And so, I'm going to read it, as always. I'm going to add my thoughts, and let's just jump into it, shall we? It's no secret that plenty of murderers make a big deal out of their own intelligence. It's a trademark characteristic of a sociopath. They think themselves above the petty morality of us mere mortals. But honestly, I think the trope of the genius killer is overused. So much so that any old idiot with a smug smile and a murder conviction gets the label. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce today's case. One of the most famous crimes in the history of Chicago, which chilled the city to the bone back in the 1920s. High on a cocktail of trust fund, wealth, nihilistic philosophy, and the promise of mass media attention, two young men set out to commit what they believed would be the perfect crime. When the story broke of two book-smart rich kids trying to prove their intellectual superiority over the police, press, and, well, everybody else, really, the case was cemented in the American consciousness for decades after. If they were after media attention, well, they certainly got it, didn't they? According to some, the perpetrators had a decent claim to the title of criminal geniuses, but in reality, their execution was anything but flawless. Perhaps this deadly duo weren't quite as clever as they always thought. So let me tell you the facts, and we'll see if you agree. Without further ado, here is the story of Leopold and Loeb, the genius killers. The Crime On May the 21st, 1924, 14-year-old Bobby Franks was walking home from playing baseball with his friends through the affluent neighborhood of Kenwood on Chicago's south side. This wasn't the sort of place where parents worried about their kids walking home alone. Only wealthy people stayed here, predominantly familiar faces from the Jewish community. The crime, which plagued the rest of the city in the 1920s, tended to not cross over into this particular postcode. Young Bobby was one such wealthy resident, son to a watch manufacturer named Jacob Franks. He was well-known and well-liked around the area, a keen young sportsman with a love of tennis. His parents waited at home on that day to ask him about the game, but dinner time came round, and Bobby still wasn't home. The clock ticked on, and by the evening, their confusion had given way to fear. They spread words that Bobby hadn't made it home that day. They asked around the neighborhood in the hopes that he might have gone off to dinner with a teammate, but no such luck. Nobody had seen him since he left the baseball field after school. Eventually, Bobby's mother received a phone call with news of her son, the exact kind of news that she and her husband had been dreading. The man on the other end of the line went by the name of George Johnson. He had kidnapped their son. That is not the call that I would most dread. Like, kidnapping is fairly terrible. That is not good news. But it's not, yeah, no, he was he, he's lost or uh, not lost. He's killed. That would be worse. Johnson instructed the terrified mother to await instructions on how to deliver the $10,000 ransom, which would secure Bobby's safety, which is roughly $150,000 in today's money. Sure enough, after a sleepless night, the next morning a typewritten message arrived in the post, accompanied by another call with the first set of instructions. This set Bobby's father off on an anxious treasure hunt, which was intended to send him to a string of locations and dead drops. But unfortunately, the whole thing ran into a brick wall pretty quickly. The stress of the situation caused Bobby's father to forget the address of the store, which Johnson had given out over the phone. He couldn't receive the next part of the instructions. This is one thing that I always find in movies is incredibly fake. <laughs> when someone reads out, you know, that in this situation, they've been kidnapped. And it's like, yes, you need to meet me at like 1249 Sycamore Drive at 3.20pm. And I'll be like, okay, great. 
and then I'd immediately forget like one four two something sycamore drive at some time or like when someone reads out a phone number and it's like nine digits long or whatever and the person's like yep got it and like no one no one can do that i <laughs> i mean i'm sure some people can but it seems a bit unrealistic and in a stressful situation i'm sure i'm even more likely to forget before his wife could give him a slap around his head for his forgetfulness however the whole treasure hunt was called off apparently it had all been in vain from the get-go bobby was dead his body had been hastily abandoned in a railway culvert in hammond indiana his clothes were missing and he had acid burns over his face and body the apparent cause of death was severe bludgeoning to the head this front page news story sent a shockwave through chicago a city which was no stranger to murder but rarely saw the violent death of a wealthy suburban teen the pressure was on for investigators to find the culprits a task which would turn out to be far easier than anyone first thought how they solved it they're solving the crime already we're, we're a page and a half in callum and i see there's a good 15 pages here see while combing through the area around the culverton stream the detectives found something which was distinctly out of place way out in the countryside a pair of circular horn-rimmed spectacles by the side of the stream admittedly knowing the prescription of the perp doesn't exactly narrow things down much but luckily these were no ordinary glasses yeah but if they find some other evidence and then the guy has the exact pr same prescription that is definitely going to add to your strong circumstantial case right there they had a unique type of spring fitted onto them, meaning the police could trace them right back to the Chicago optometrist who had sold them, Alma Co. This was a total bullseye, because according to the shop records, Co had only ever sold three pairs of these glasses. Two of the short-sighted suspects were ruled out immediately, leaving just one possible owner. And his name was Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr., another resident of Kenwood and the son of a wealthy industrialist. Regardless, he didn't seem to be the killing type, a bookish law student with a seemingly bright future ahead of him it was extremely unlikely that they had found their man when the police confronted 19 year old leopold he explained that he must have dropped his glasses when out bird watching the week before if you think that sounds like something he made up on the spot i would encourage you to trust your instincts but this is the thing because they're trying to commit this perfect crime these guys are just psychos interested in killing someone so the motive thing the traditional idea of motive is completely out of the window and so you got this kid and if i was the police and you go to this guy it's like it can't be him right I mean, this guy? It was enough to satisfy the detectives at first, but they still had to follow up on the lead, and although the glasses could be explained away, the letters could not. See, Leopold was a keen academic. When the authorities searched his home, they were able to run comparisons between pieces he had written on his typewriter and the ransom note sent to the Frank's home. The machine itself was missing, but experts needed to only look at the printed characters themselves to confirm a match. That seems a little bit more like a major error. I mean, dropping your glasses, it's like, yeah, you're going to sweat over that, but... Dude, using your typewriter to write the ransom note? It's like, come on, what are you doing? <laughs> sure enough, Leopold's documents were a match for the ransom note, a fact made clear by the detective T and F on the machine that was used to type them. Leopold was well and truly done for, but the police already suspected that he hadn't carried out the whole thing alone. See, Leopold was inseparable from another local teen who happened to be a direct neighbor of Bobby Frank. This was 18-year-old Richard Albert Loeb, the more charismatic and sporty half of this despicable duo. Witnesses attested to the fact that the two had been together on the day when the crime was committed, meaning it was likely a joint endeavor. 
The police brought them both in for questioning, and when presented with the overwhelming evidence, both Leopold and Loeb confessed to everything. Their statements were extensive, with a boastful tone that showcased just how proud the two of them were of their master plan, even though it had gone down like the Hindenburg ten years before that was even a thing. So there you have it, one of the quickest and tidiest investigations that you're ever likely to hear about on this show. Case closed. See you next time. Callum, there is still a stack of pages in front of me. I also read about this online, and I thought these guys were super smart somehow and actually got away with stuff. So I'm guessing there's a lot more to this story. Actually, hold on a minute. Wait, I can't let you go just yet. We knew it, Callum. The actual crime and investigation are just a fraction of the whole story here. Until we can understand why this case is so infamous, we're going to have to take a deep dive into some pretty dark corners of human psychology and American old money culture. Let's begin with the young men themselves. Why, when both of them had the world laid at their feet, had they decided to kill a child? It wasn't for money. Both Leopold and Loeb already had more than they'd ever need, so was it part of some horrible family feud? Nope. Loeb's family were friendly with the Franks. They were second cousins, in fact. It's like they're just psychos, right? They just wanted to see if they could kill someone. Isn't there a film? It's called like The Perfect Murder or something, where there are these two guys and they try to commit this perfect murder and they just, you know, it has to be a random person that they kill. And I'm like, this is so psycho. Also, the perfect murder is not committed in a pair. Because, I mean, that's just way too risky. Like, someone could tell on you. The other partner, of course. The reality is that the only motives behind this killing were thrill-seeking and a grisly statement of moral superiority. It's a bit of a weird one. See, Leopold and Loeb were by all accounts gifted young men. The former had started university at just 15 years old and had already had several pieces published in the US's top ornithology journal. Yes, ladies, ornithology. That's birdwatching, right? So it does kind of make, make sense that he would say that he lost his glasses while birdwatching. Likewise, at age 17, Loeb had begun the University of Michigan's youngest graduate. He was enrolled at the University of Chicago Graduate School studying history at the time of the crime. Now, have you ever met someone who skipped grades in school and went to university early. I don't mean to generalize, but they tend to mention it quite a bit, and that sort of thing can give kids a major complex. I don't think I've ever met anyone who went to university. I mean, I've met, like, there were kids, there was one kid in my class who was a, a year younger, like, they were moved a year ahead, and there was one kid at university who had the same thing, like, they were 17 and they'd gone to university when everyone else was just 18. But other than that, no, it's, it's relatively rare, I think. And to go at 15, that's like three years. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know any like superchild geniuses. Don't superchild geniuses go to like special schools? Such was the case with Leo and Loeb. They had it bad. Leopold was especially interested in the idea of the Ubermensch, a term coined by Friedrich Nietzsche and overused by millions of the most obnoxious college students ever since. Yes. In English, it's usually translated as Superman, but not the spandex-wearing type. As with all big ideas, the meaning of it is up for interpretation. But for the purposes of this show, all you need to know is how Leopold took it. He was obsessed with the idea that certain people, by virtue of their superior intellect, were above the morality of ordinary humanity. His obsession was so great that he came to believe he and his buddy were prime examples of this kind of superior being. Boy, was that guy a narcissist. <laughs> He heaped the majority of his adoration on Loeb. Loeb was the better looking of the two, the more socially successful, and spent more time enjoying a life of leisure than actually studying. The geekier Leopold, on the other hand, rocked a monobrow to rival Frida Kahlo and had struggled to fit in during his teens. His social awkwardness and frequent intellectual boasting made it difficult to relate to others. Who knew? Yeah, because everyone... <laughs> exactly. No one likes someone who is constantly telling you how smart they are. 
Hmm, so a guy with delusions of grandeur uses Friedrich Nietzsche to justify horrible violence. Hold on, I swear I've heard this one before. <laughs> anyway, when these... Just, yeah. <laughs> anyway, when these two insufferable teens buddied up, the stage was set for a violent descent into narcissism, which would eventually leave one young man dead and two behind bars. Leo and Loeb had been acquaintances growing up, but in their late teens, the two of them had become partners in crime, quite literally. It was Loeb who started it. His apparent boredom with his comfortable existence had already led him to dip his toes into petty crime a few times. By this point, he fancied himself as something of a criminal mastermind, even though he had just smashed a few shop windows. Hardly Al Capone stuff. Yeah, this is, I mean... It's all great to have a trust fund, you know, and to be born and not have to worry about this stuff. And I mean, if you don't have one, you'd be like, wow, that sounds awesome. But the reality is, if you don't kind of have purpose and if you don't have anything to aim for, it's like that's, you know, I feel like that's a really important part of humanity. And if everything's just handed to you on a plate, you're going to look to get your thrills somewhere else rather than, you know, the normal human way of trying to make your own way in the world. It's thought that Leopold originally got on board with Loeb's criminal pursuits because of a strong romantic attraction. They entered into an unstable arrangement in which Leopold could act as Loeb's criminal sidekick in exchange for sexual rewards. Among their more noteworthy crimes were several acts of petty arson, vandalism, and burglary. For example, in November 1923, the pair drove to the University of Michigan to raid the frat house which Loeb had once belonged to. Their hall was underwhelming, but included a certain typewriter with a couple of broken keys, which Leopold claimed for himself. It was on his drive back to Chicago that Loeb revealed his plan for their biggest crime yet, one which would finally register in the newspapers and make them the talk of Chicago. He charmed Leopold with the story of the perfect murder, committed by two young geniuses whose incredible intellects would ensure that they never, ever could be caught. Well, we know how that one worked out. They got caught incredibly quickly because they left behind blindingly obvious clues. Confessions But regardless, let's humor the boy geniuses for now. Ignore the fact that the crime was incredibly shoddily executed and have a listen to them gloat about how exactly they planned to get away with it. Their confessions were taken by the Chicago PD on May the 31st, and as I said before, they were not shy on the details. We even know how much the murder weapon cost. 75 cents, if you were wondering. If you're interested in seeking out the original copies, you can find scans online provided by Midwestern University. I'm warning you, though, they both feature unashamed descriptions of every detail of the crime which might make your stomach turn. Instead, let me just summarize the events for you. Both statements revealed much the same story. The pair had discussed for months the best way to carry out a murder which would prove entirely unsolvable. Loeb was an avid reader of detective novels and reckoned that that gave him a greater insight into how to plan a crime. I wouldn't disagree. It's definitely better than nothing. Although the typewriter thing, like the matching the keys, I feel is, I've seen that maybe at least 20 times in, you know, true crime, fictionalized crime, television, movies, books, everywhere. It's the same reason I reckon I'd make a pretty good spy. Don't mean to brag, but I've seen Goldfinger three times. To get things started, Leopold and Loeb invented false identities for themselves and then planned every detail from the spot they would dump the body to the vehicle they would use to transport it. Their plan was so extensive that it was set in full motion about a month before any blood would be shed. On the 20th of April, Leopold visited a rent-a-car shop in downtown Chicago. Using the name Morton D. Ballard, he introduced himself as a traveling salesman and asked to rent a vehicle. By way of identification, he provided a bank book which matched the same fake name. The pair had got this by depositing $100 into a new account that morning. Meanwhile, Loeb checked into a hotel called the Morrison under the same name. 
The imaginary Mr. Ballard had had a busy day indeed. When he arrived at the hotel, there was even some mail waiting for him, sent by the pair in the days prior. Getting the car was the toughest part, though. The rental company operator asked for the standard three references. Leopold complained that he was only in the city for a short while, could only provide one, Mr. Lewis Mason. The worker called the number of Mr. Mason, which was actually connected to a drugstore payphone, where Loeb was posted patiently. Wait, so in the past, when he rented a car, he had to have three references, and the person would phone up and ask them? That's seems bizarre, very specific, a massive hassle, and kind of easily cheatable. After securing the car at 11am, the duo drove around for a few hours before returning it at 4pm. The rental operator told Mr. Ballard that his registration card would be sent to his hotel over the next few days. When Loeb returned to the hotel to check for it, however, he found that the briefcase he had left in the room was now missing. Apparently, a suspicious maid had reported that nobody was actually staying in the room at all. When the hotel staff opened the briefcase, they would have found it filled with old magazines. Not exactly a crime, but it would have drawn a sort of attention that you don't need when you're gearing up for a murder, so they never went back. These guys suck at being criminals. I mean... The guy went to university at 15. I'd be like, dude, you can do, you could be a better criminal than this. Come on. Regardless, they had all the pieces set up, even without the registration card. Fast forward to the day before the crime, the 20th of May. Driving in Leopold's red sports car, the two visited a hardware store to buy rope and another for a chisel. Yeah, a red sports car. That's a great idea to be driving around when you're trying to be incognito. Further down the street, they hit up a couple of drugstores to collect some hydrochloric acid. Apparently, pharmacists were a lot more chill about over-the-counter acid back in the day. With all the materials in hand, they went back to Leopold's to prepare. Loeb wrapped tape around the sharp end of the chisel, creating a makeshift, makeshift club out of the handle slide. They ripped up pieces of fabric to make a gag, and Leopold typed up a ransom note. Dear sir, you no doubt know by this time that your son has been kidnapped. Please follow our instructions carefully and nothing will happen to him. If you don't follow our instructions to the letter, you will never see your son again. Number one, do not communicate with the police. If you have done so already, please do not mention this letter. Number two, go down to the bank and get $10,000 in old bills. Be sure the bills are old. Any new or marked bills will be noticed. Get $2,000 in $20 bills and $8,000 in $50 bills. Number three, be home by one o'clock. Do not let the phone be used. Importantly, he didn't add any address alongside the very specific set of instructions. See, the two hadn't decided on exactly who they would be kidnapping just yet, so they would have to fill it in after the fact. All Leopold and Loeb knew was that their victim had to be a child because these Ubermensch were total cowards and they had to be wealthy. That was a key requirement, as the ransom note was intended to throw police off the trail. If these two rich young men, whose families would be worth about $150 million combined nowadays, Wow, so these guys weren't just, you know, regular wealthy. They were wealthy wealthy. This would stop money from looking like motive, and the police would probably not look among high society. In reality, there was no material motive at all. The thrill of ending a life and the ego trip of watching the police and media fail to solve it were the only rewards they really wanted, and sickeningly, for a short while, they were able to get both. I should warn you, the part coming up is very violent and very uncomfortable, but, well, you're the casual criminalist, so what did you expect? Confessions, the crime. On the morning of the 21st of May 1924, the two young men met outside the university where Leopold had just finished class for the day. They drove his car to the rental office where Mr. Ballard, now a familiar and verified face, had no problems renting a car for the second time. It seems strange to me, again, like bringing up the car thing. You need three references to rent a car or to like set up an account, but you can go to the bank and just be like, yeah, yeah, I'm Mr. Ballard, here's $100. And they're like, okay, here's a bank account. That seems way more sketch. 
With one of them behind the wheel of each car, they stopped into a diner for lunch before dumping the red sports car behind the back of Leopold's place. It was still early afternoon, so they decided to head to town to park and wait. As Lowe put it, they wanted to wait for the schools to finish before starting any operations. The particular school they were focused on was the Harvard Boys School, where they had both studied prior. Again, like guys, you want to commit the perfect crime? Don't go to the school where you studied. Go to some other random school in some other random neighborhood. And don't use your red sports car. Come on. Come on, guys. You can do better. At 2.15, they drove over there, all the while looking out for an opportunity. Leopold waited in an alleyway while Loeb went out to scout the school grounds. He later told the police, I waited in the car while Dick, that's Loeb, went through the alley to a place where he could either command a view of the Harvard school, or if he saw any likely-looking children, he could start playing with them. See what I mean about some parts of the interviews being extremely uncomfortable? As part of his creepy reconnaissance, Loeb chatted with the teacher responsible for looking after the kids as they left school, as well as a young boy called John Levinson, who was getting ready to head out. Dude, and again, what are you doing? You're just like gathering witnesses for later? I mean, if you didn't get caught on the glasses thing or the typewriter thing, you'd definitely be caught in all of this stuff. What is wrong with you? Out front of the school, he bumped into his own little brother. That's right, Loeb's own sibling went to the school. And that didn't even make him stop and reconsider what he was about to do. Yes, he's a psycho. After chatting for a while, he was called back over to the car. As Loeb told the investigators, there were some children playing on Ingleside Avenue that Leopold thought could be potential prospects. After observing several groups of kids, they set their sights again on one John Levinson, who they spotted playing on a patch of waste ground. Struggling to get a good look, they returned to Leopold's house to grab a pair of birdwatching binoculars. They were so set on ending that kid's life that Loeb even went to a drugstore to check the phone book, hoping to ambush him on his way home once they learned his address. Not long after they returned, Levinson ran off. The would-be killers were deflated at their lack of progress, and the boy was totally unaware of how incredibly close he came to death that day. This is another thing I wonder about. It's like the number of times you've come close to dying. Like, I once always got into a pretty bad car accident. Like, I just, uh, it was entirely my fault. I just didn't look properly. I'd recently passed my driving test, pulled out. Someone absolutely slammed on their brakes, almost entirely plowed into the side of me. And that was one of those times where you're like, hmm, that would have been extremely bad. I don't know if I'd have died, but it was, you know, that was close. And you think about all the other times, it's like where you don't even know that you've been incredibly close to death. I'd be fascinated to find out when was the closest that I came to that. Maybe you're on a plane and it almost crashes with another plane and you never find out or something like that. Anyway, uh, dark thoughts. One who was not so lucky, however, was Bobby Franks. They happened across him by the side of the road and instantly decided that the plan was back on. Franks was an easy target on account of the fact that he knew Loeb and it'd be easy to coerce into a kidnapping. On top of that, they knew that his father was very wealthy. So Leopold pulled alongside Bobby and Loeb spoke to him through the backseat window. He offered him a ride, which Bobby politely declined, seeing as he was only about five minutes from home. A persistent Loeb changed his tune, saying that he wanted to chat to him about a tennis racket, which was enough to draw the sport-loving Bobby in. With the unwitting victim in the passenger seat, Leopold drove off again. At the first opportunity, Loeb grabbed his weapon, the chisel, and leaned over and cut Bobby's mouth and, and brought the handle smashing down onto the back of the boy's skull. Bobby struggled as he was struck in the head three more times, spinning around to face his attacker and crying out all the while. Even after four hits, Bobby continued to groan, something which Loeb hadn't anticipated. The reality of ending life was far less clean-cut than in his detective novels. So he dragged the victim to the back seat, forced a rag into his mouth, and taped it shut. It was like that that Bobby Franks slowly passed away in the back seat of the car.
Leopold claimed in his confession that the victim died instantly of suffocation shortly thereafter, which is an inherently nonsensical sentence. That is horrible. At first, the two killers had given conflicting accounts of who actually killed Bobby, with each blaming the other. However, their stories converged more after that. They told of how the boy was covered with a blanket while they proceeded onwards to Indiana, a total journey of around 25 miles. I feel even if uh, they're in concert so much, I know modern law would label, at least in the UK, I believe in the US as well, it would label them both as murderers because they were uh, acting in consort. Like, I believe there are gang laws that that mean people are guilty like that not 100 sure but i mean you don't need to shift the blame you're both going to be guilty of murder guys come on now they stopped along the way to throw bobby's shoes into a bush removing his trousers and socks and putting them back in the car now all that was left to do was wait until dark they cruised around the countryside and stopped in at a sandwich shop for dinner and root beers it was as if they didn't have the body of a kid sitting in their car at all once twilight came they traveled onwards to the dumping point they had chosen weeks before originally they planned to kill their victim with an ether soaked rag once there but he was already dead long before he arrived at the site they removed the rest of bobby's clothes and poured the hydrochloric acid on his face in an attempt to cover up his identity some reports mentioned that the same was done to his genitals as the fact that he was circumcised could help the police identify the victim as jewish although neither culprit mentioned this in his confession then they pushed him headfirst into the railway culvert leaving half the body clearly visible leopold attempted to shove it further inside with his foot we can take a little bit of satisfaction over the image of the pair of horn-rimmed glasses slipping out of his pocket as he did so meanwhile Loeb went off to wash his hands on the other side of the tracks they then set off homeward this was at about 9 p.m and on the way they stopped at a drugstore to check the address of their victim leopold called his parents to let them know that it'd be late it was he who on returning to chicago called the franks household under the george johnson alias this was to be the start of an elaborate hunt which would distract the attention of the family and investigators and satisfy the killer's craving for mystery novel drama it's pretty clear that loeb's noir novel filled imagination played a big part in cooking up this part of the plan i mean the final step was for the father to toss an envelope containing ten thousand dollars from a moving train near lake michigan with the two waiting in a car to collect it thankfully the family were spared taking part in that futile little game although it's not much consolation given the circumstances after leo and loeb put things in motion by mailing the ransom note they turned their attention to the bloodstains in the rental car they cleaned it up as much as possible buried the clothes in loeb's furnace and then headed over to leopold's house to hang out with his family as if nothing had happened waiting for their elaborate scheme to unfold but as we know the whole thing fell apart faster than a house of cards in a hurricane it didn't start off terribly the note arrived at the franks household but there were a few other pieces to set up before they could topple the dominoes that would lead them to the ten thousand dollars first the car it was still very clearly bloodstained while the pair tried to scrub it clean in leopold's garage the chauffeur came down to offer a hand they were able to send him off with a story about spilling red wine we've all been there right cruising around drinking pinot noir straight from the bottle until some idiot breaks in front of you in the end the majority of the visible staining could be removed despite the close call again just reiterating how these guys are terrible at crime after that they drove downtown for with a series of typewritten notes that would direct the treasure hunt they tried to take one inside a trash can but it wouldn't hold so instead they went straight to the train station Loeb disguised himself in a hat glasses and black overcoat he bought a ticket to Philadelphia solely for the purpose of hiding a note on the train it instructed Mr Franks to move to the back of the train and watch until he saw a red brick factory with the name champion painted on the outside after waiting a few seconds he was to toss the boxed up cash as far eastward as possible 
While Loeb planted this final instruction, Leopold was setting the whole convoluted sequence in motion. He called a taxi to the Franks' house and called them to direct the father to a downtown drugstore where he would receive another call on a payphone. Honestly, it seems like a completely unnecessary step when they already had him on the phone at that very moment, but I guess I'm just not a criminal genius indeed. It was around that point, at around 2.30 in the afternoon, that the duo had the first inclination that maybe they weren't so good at this crime business either. Driving past a newsstand, they caught sight of a front-page headline, Boy's Body Found in Swamp. It had been less than 24 hours since they disposed of the body, and it had already been found. Regardless, Leopold demanded they keep on with the whole charade. They tried calling the drugstore, but as we already know, poor Mr. Franks had forgotten the address. His pain at thinking he let his son down was cut off by a deeper pain. The police identified the body that afternoon. For Leopold and Loeb, it meant the little game was over. They decided just to return the car and head home. Loeb's chauffeur told him about the murder when he arrived, and the pair's anxiety started to build. They began discussing what to do if questioned, and set about destroying the last of the evidence. The typewriter was tossed in the harbor, and its bar head scattered into a river in the park. The blankets they doused in gasoline and burned in an alleyway. But there was one key piece of evidence they couldn't destroy. In the newspaper, they saw the police had found a distinctive pair of glasses near the body, and the heat was really on. Now our two narratives have neatly tied together. We understand exactly how this horrible crime took place, every detestable little detail. Awful and horrible, yes, but could you really call this the perfect crime? Objectively, no. In fact, the whole thing displays about as much genius as your average corner store robbery. I don't mean to be crass, but surely if two huge intellects planned the crime of the century for months, they could come up with a better method than smacking someone with a chisel. And all of that planning only for Leopold to drop his glasses, undone by the same Achilles heel as Velma from Scooby-Doo. Add to that all the blood over the rental car, cleaning the car at their own home, the shoddy concealment of the body, and the amount of people who the two revealed their faces to while scoping out the school, and you hardly have the portrait of two master criminals. And that's just mentioning a few of the things, not to mention the typewriter with the matching letters. It's like, yeah, you got rid of the typewriter, but you've written a whole lot of stuff on there. It, it's going to be matched up. Could it really be that these two weren't geniuses at all, but a couple of bumbling sadists with good school report cards? I mean, there's a reason why crime shows don't usually feature a diabolical ornithologist as the villain, murder, and birdwatching are two distinct fields with very different skill sets. At the end of the day, Leopold and Loeb were well out of their depth, just two garden-variety narcissists living out delusions of grandeur. Well, that's my take on the story anyway. The media at the time, however, spun plenty of different yarns about what might have caused the horrible crime to take place. This was the early days of true mass media, when radios had just started finding their way into millions of American households. Everyone had an opinion and an agenda to push with it. The airwaves and papers were filled with all kinds of speculation. For example, some ran with the idea that the crime was the inescapable result of the new culture of libertinism which had swept over the American youth. Churches, synagogues, and traditional values were having a hard time competing against jazz bars and casual sex. It's hard to imagine why. Evangelist Billy Sunday was one such proponent. He rallied against the moral miasma of the youth of the day and their infidel minds. Likewise, an unnamed individual referred to only as a Jewish spokesman wrote in the Chicago Tribune that rich Jewish parents were to blame for letting their children grow up spoiled and without any values. And of course, once news of the sexual dynamic between the two culprits came to light, this was taken as evidence of moral corruption. Now remember, this was the 1920s. Plenty of folks were on the lookout for chances to bash rich Jewish people, gay 
gay people and atheism. I'll not be participating in any of that because I haven't lost my mind. My aim is to give you a sense of the kind of media frenzy that was whipped up around this case. The idea of the American dream itself was being put to the test. After all, two of its model families had produced offspring no better than the poor folk who were rotting in prison. Various academics were rallied to try and explain the whole thing. Psychologists attached significance to the fact that Leopold had already been sexually abused by his governess. That's nanny for our UK listeners. Although I feel like Americans would also say nanny as well these days. Governess feels very old-fashioned. There were even graphics published in the papers featuring analyses of Leopold and Loeb's skull shapes. (laughs) Ah, is it phrenology? The science of, like... Uh, people feeling your skull to see what's up inside, and it's all lies. Why is that important? Well, there's an out-of-funct pseudoscience called phrenology. Oh, Callum and I, same page. And I'm quite pleased that I remember that it was called phrenology, which claims that it was possible to determine a person's psychological character just by looking at the shape of their head. I'll give a quick rundown of Leopold's for any phrenology fans listening in. The slope of his brow meant that he lacked benevolent power. The tops of his ears revealed a distinctive instinct. His lips were sensuous. I think maybe that phrenologist needed to go take a cold shower. Yeah, it's it's just all bullshit, really. The Trial Against this backdrop of media sensationalism, the Cook County State Attorney was tasked with achieving the harshest possible punishment for both Leopold and Loeb death penalty for sure. Uh, this was Robert Crow, a Republican Party man with mayoral aspirations. He saw his shot to gain the goodwill of the public with a swift death penalty ruling. He was pretty confident that he could pull it off. In fact, Crow told the papers this was potentially the most complete case he ever presented to a grand or petite jury. Wait, are they pleading not guilty? I assumed they, they, they confessed, so I assume they're going for non-guilty. So is there a jury in the US in that case? Or does the judge just make just the judge a sentence? Or maybe in death penalty cases, I don't know, but maybe this is correct, that there is a jury to decide what punishment is dished out. Or maybe in the US, does the jury decide how long you go to prison for? I thought that was the judge's job. Anyway, I'll stop talking because I don't know what I'm talking about. When the defense counsel for Leopold and Loeb was revealed, however, Crow surely wished he had dialed down the bravado. This was Clarence Darrow, a legendary name in American legal circles, and likely one to ring some bells even for the casual true crime listener. Darrow and Crow had gone head-to-head before on a corruption case featuring a senior Republican, with Darrow ultimately coming out on top. The trial, which started in July, was all set up to be a major courtroom drama, the kind of which the American public eats right up to this day. Local radio station WGN even considered setting up mics in the courthouse to broadcast the whole thing live, but decided that it would be in poor taste. Yes, it would be in poor taste. Fast forward 70 years and the whole nation would be gawking at the OJ trial, popcorn in hands. I'll let you decide which setup is better. Oh yeah, okay. So you can have like cameras and stuff in U.S. courtrooms. In the U.K., I don't believe you can. And so there's sketch artists who will draw what's going on. And that appears in the paper rather than, uh, you know, actual photos and, and stuff like that. But unlike in the OJ trial, nobody even considered exoneration as an option. I mean, the two killers had given confessions over 30 pages long and were openly proud of what they had done. No lawyer on earth was going to spin that into a not guilty. For Clarence Darrow, the bar was set much lower. 
Success meant avoiding the death penalty. Of course, when it came time to enter a plea, both Leopold and Loeb admitted their guilt. This allowed them to completely bypass trial by jury. Okay, good. I, I thought that was the case. I'm glad that we have the facts here, which would have massively swung things in the state's favor. Instead, Darrow only needed to appeal to the judge himself. All he had to do was convince the judge that Leopold and Loeb suffered from mental health problems rather than full-blown insanity, which would be enough to win life in prison. I think that should be achievable. And if this is a very good lawyer, that seems very likely. Because, clear. I mean, there's that, that lack of motive, the trust fund, rich kids, just got nothing better to do, spoiled. It's, they're, they're screwed up guys. There's no one who could argue that they're not screwed up guys. Just can that lawyer spin that, not, spin that screwed upness into mental issues? I believe probably yes. I don't know. I don't know the outcome of this one. So both sides rolled out psychiatrists to give conflicting explanations for the same evidence which caused a backlash against the field in the papers. The defense played every card in their hand, even arguing that the pressures of being from a wealthy family had caused the two teens to act out against their life of privilege. Man, being rich must be so tough. They painted a picture of both men as fanaticists. Leopold as a self-aggrandizing servant, desperate to worship and serve Loeb, while Loeb imagined himself as a criminal genius with need for someone to applaud him. As evidence, one of the psychological profilers quoted a conversation that he had with Loeb when he asked what he thought of the possibility of death by hanging. The killer said, well, it's too bad a fellow won't be able to read about it in the newspapers. All of these narratives and counter-narratives were woven over a grueling 33-day trial, which came to a head with a 12-hour closing argument from Darrow. His speech became a definitive aspect of not only the trial, but his entire career. In it, he gave an impassioned argument against the death penalty in principle. Invoking all kinds of fresh science from the decades prior, he eloquently argued that if it's in human nature or an individual's own nature to commit crime, then they can't rightly be held fully responsible in the traditional moral sense, making the death penalty barbaric. It's a bit of a stretch, but okay. It's an interesting question to consider. If we accept that inescapable factors like insanity result in diminished responsibility, can that be extended to more basic parts of human or individual nature? That might be taking things a bit far away from the casual criminalist and more into the hardcore criminologist territory, so we'll just leave it for you to consider. Thanks, Callum. Yeah, this is getting pretty, it's getting pretty deep, these moral ethical questions. At any, rate, the, at any rate, the closing speech was a home run. Leopold and Loeb, the child killers, were sentenced to life in prison plus 99 years for kidnapping. They had dodged the noose, and Robert Crowe was left to stomp his hat in frustration. Later that day, he rallied against the judge in the press and was quoted as saying, Leopold and Loeb had the reputation of being degenerates of the worst type. It is unfortunate for the welfare of the community that they were not sentenced to death. I don't know, if they're in prison. But what are they going to do? I don't think that, other than satisfy some need for vengeance, I don't think the community is going to be particularly adversely affected. They're still taken away and put somewhere where they will never get out of. The two degenerates, on the other hand, seemed quite pleased with the results. They were allowed to shake Darrow's hand before being carted off to Northern Illinois Penitentiary, where I'm sure their Nietzsche quotes won them a lot of friends. Definitely didn't. Those, I can't imagine child killers have a particularly great time in prison, especially when they're, they've got the superiority complex that these guys clearly had. That brings us about to the end of our story of Leopold and Loeb, so I'd just like to ask, was this the crime of the century which the newspapers try to sell it as? Uh, my answer there, Callum, is absolutely not. You kind of read about this online, and it's like, oh, that sounds exciting. 
these genius killers and then it's like oh no they were just smart kids but they were really terrible at crime maybe they, like like Alan said maybe they were really good at ornithology Honestly, without the money and status involved, I doubt it would even be considered particularly noteworthy. Robert Crowe put it pretty well in his own closing argument when he said, Take away their money, and what happens? The same thing that has happened to all other men who have been tried in this building who had no money. Clarence Darrow once said that a poor man on trial here was disposed of in 15 minutes. But if he was rich and committed the same crime, and he got a good lawyer, his trial would last 21 days. Well, they got three lawyers, and it has lasted just a little bit longer. When someone without the privileged life enjoyed by Leopold and Lowe kill someone, they're tarred as a natural criminal by default. But add in a touch of wealth, and suddenly the killers are given a platform to preach their philosophical justifications. If that fact alone doesn't make you sick, have a listen to this. In a newspaper interview during the trial, Leopold told a reporter, A thirst for knowledge is highly commendable no matter what extreme pain or injury it may inflict upon others. A six-year-old boy is justified in pulling the wings from a fly if by doing so he learns that without wings, the fly is helpless. Leopold is a total psycho. (laughs) Only a total psycho would would say that. Like, you can learn that a fly is helpless because someone will tell you so. Like, the fly flies with its wings. If you take off the wings, it's not going to fly. Okay, great. Now I don't need to take the wings off any flies. Problem solved. I'm pretty sure most of us were able to figure that out without any practical experimentation. Yes, thank you, Callum. Even with our puny intellects. But that's beside the point. All he's describing are the same basic impulses as every garden variety sadist, just with added pretentiousness. All this talk of psychology and philosophy just dressed up one simple fact. These two men were child murderers. And without any remorse to stop them, where might their murderous line of logic have taken them if they weren't caught? I can't say for sure, but what I can tell you is where they ended up. In January of 1936, Loeb fell foul of another prisoner named James Day, who was serving a bid for grand larceny. Day ambushed Loeb in the prison showers, slashing and stabbing him until he lay bleeding out on the floor. He died of 50 wounds, including a slashed throat at just 30 years old. It didn't take kryptonite to kill this self-appointed superman. Just a simple shank did the job. Yeah, like I said, he wasn't going to have a good time in prison, was he? He's a dickhead and a child murderer. As for Leopold, he outlived his partner by quite a few decades. In 1958, he was granted parole, partly due to the advocacy of poet Carl Sandburg, who was apparently willing to overlook the whole child murder thing. Carl, what are you doing? He got parole? He was sentenced to life plus 99 years and narrowly avoided the death penalty. Why on earth did this guy get out of prison? He started a new life down in Puerto Rico, refusing to engage with the countless requests for interviews from U.S. journalists. He married a fellow expat, gained a degree in social care, and went on to work in leprosy research and nature writing until his death in 1971. So, 1958. When did he go to prison? Just go back a little bit. Well, it was shortly after the crime, right? And the crime was... 1924 so let's say 1925 so he spent uh 33 years in prison right yeah good arithmetic 33 years in prison he should have been in prison for way longer than that he should have never left prison Two very different outcomes which appeal to two very different kinds of criminal justice. Retribution versus reformation. If you don't know which side you believe, try this little experiment. Which result made you less furious? There you have your answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, that's a very quick assessment of it. And obviously, like, prison can be for, you know, to reform people. But also, if you're a child murderer, maybe we should just, for no reason, just a psychopathic child murderer, maybe you should stay in prison. Dismembered Appendices 
Number 1. Despite the lawyer winning one of the most unlikely victories of, an, of his entire career, Leopold's father was apparently unhappy with Clarence Darrow's work and refused to pay for his services. It's unclear what he was hoping for. I mean, if your son kills a kid and brags about it, anything short of the maximum sentence has to be considered lenient. Ah, rich people. One quirk of rich people crime is that the world of musical theatre pays a lot more attention. In 2005, a musical called Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb story, premiered in New York to positive reviews. If the idea of listening to a chipper number in which a child murderer tries to entice a kid into his car sounds utter unsettling to you, well, still steer well clear. Who on earth thought that was a good idea? Who gave this good reviews? This is... this is... it's distasteful a hundred years later. Come on. Number 3. In 1958, Leopold was given a further platform with the release of his autobiography, Life Plus 99 Years. It was seen as part of his attempt to polish his image and gain parole. Another book on the case by Mayor Levin named Compulsion was made into a film one year later, and Leopold tried to stop it on the grounds it damaged his reputation. The judge on the case essentially said, You, the proud child murderer, have no reputation left to damage. Goodbye. That has been a rather dark episode of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope, well, not that you enjoyed it, but I do hope you found it interesting. If you are enjoying this show and you're listening to it as a podcast, please do leave us a review. If you are enjoying this show and you're watching it on YouTube, please do give us a thumbs up, leave us a comment, subscribe. And thank you for watching or listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.